Worship is a worship on Sundays is a dialogue. The Lord calls us to worship. We respond in praise. We confess our sins to Him. He assures us of His pardon. Um, we respond again in praise. We come to Him and and put our petitions before Him. And now He comes not only to speak to us, but we get to hear the very Word of God as it's recorded for us in the Scriptures. This time we'll be hearing. Uh, God speak from Acts 16, verses 11 through 40. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we were where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let, these men, let those men go. 
And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they not now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, Lord, thank you for this dialogue that we can have with you. Thank you for speaking in to our lives through your word, uh, through each other, uh, through prayer, through your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you so very much for spending this time with us. Father, I pray that you would take this word that is about to be preached that you would transform us by your grace. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our eyes to see you. Father, I pray for this one that would preach your word. I pray that I would decrease and you would increase. That you would be honored and glorified above all others. For you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the, um, I probably say this often, don't I? This is one of the most exciting passages of Scripture. It's all exciting. It's all good. This is the birth of the church at Philippi. If I were to ask you for one word that describes the church at Philippi, what would it be? Come on, what would it be? Joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Right, joy. Joy, joy, where does the joy come from? Where does it begin? It begins right here with the beginning of the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. As God goes far outside um, the plans that you or I might have approved of to start the church uh, with, um, with a different set of people. Sometimes we have an idea of what we want to see when something begins, or what we want a team to look like, and God just has a totally different different idea. I remember being in the third grade. I was a new kid, uh, skinny kid, new school, um, and, and we're outside kicking, uh, playing kickball at recess. I don't know if they still do that or not. Back then there were 30 kids in a classroom. And so you have, you have all 30 kids out there. Remember, I'm the new kid, the skinny kid. I was a year younger than the rest of my classmates. Uh, and um, nobody knew me. I didn't know anybody. And they start choosing up sides. And so they, of course, choose the two most popular kids in the class to be the team captains, basically the choosers. And so, you know, you got one guy over here and one over here. And this, this one starts off, I choose Timmy. I choose Bobby. I choose Ruth. I choose Sally. And it starts to get a little awkward, 
you know, about this time. Because there's five people on each team, and then there's 10 people on each team, and then there's 14 people on each team, and there's two people left. And I think, really? I'm going to be the last one? And sure enough, I was the last one chosen. And I thought to myself, okay, this is kickball. Uh, I know I'm the fastest kid in my grade. If I can just get the ball past the infield, I'll get a home run, and the next day it'll be different, right? Because the next day they'll know I'm fast, and I'll measure up, and I'll be enough, and I'll be chosen something other than last. Well, <laughs> you know, you, you can probably fill in the rest of the story. I did kick it out of the infield. I did get a home run. I was convinced the next day would be different. Next day comes along, and the same two people are choosing the teams. I choose Timmy, I choose Bobby, I choose Ruth, I choose Sally. We get all the way to the end, there's two people left, and then there's one person left, and it's me. It was, it was weeks before I was not the last person chosen. I just didn't measure up, and I still remember, still remember the shame of that. Well, I guess I'm still a new kid, but I'm not new. Well, I am new, 15 months. I'm not a kid. I'm no longer skinny. I'm not the fastest one in the room by far. There's still a sense in which we all, we all feel like at different times, do we measure up? We ask ourselves that question, do we measure up? You know what's interesting? I'll, I'll be at General Assembly with Nathan in, uh, at the end of June. And you'll have 2,000, maybe 1,500 uh, pastors and ruling elders there. And to a person... Every one of the, the people in that room at some point in that week will wonder if they measure up. Do we measure up? God gives us a story in this passage of three individuals that would have wondered if they measured up. Luke could have given us all sorts of other details about the birth of the church at Philippi. A thousand other details maybe. maybe. But he chooses these three stories of Lydia, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman soldier. Woven into that is Paul and Silas. As God's working through them. Three individuals, Lydia, a woman, a slave girl, and a Gentile, a Roman soldier. John Stott tells us that the Jewish man would have begun every single day with the same prayer. Lord, thank you that I am not a woman or a slave or a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Those are subhuman, subpar. They don't measure up. And yet what does God tell us? He starts the church in Philippi with a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Praise God for not sticking to man's plans. When we look at God's plans and we try to replace God's plans with our own, that's like looking at Mount Everest and replacing it with a, a paper mache science project and calling the project glorious. We can't do that. God's plans are so much higher than ours. God will build his church. In this place, he starts with Lydia. Lydia was a worshiper of God. She was down by the river uh, with other women. Paul and Silas uh, go there first because there's no synagogue in the city. Normally they would go to the synagogue first, but they go to the river to pray. And there they meet a bunch of other people, women in this case, no men, uh, praying. And they begin to talk, and they begin to talk with Lydia. Lydia um, hears the words of the Lord. The passage tells us that she heard the words, she received them, she believed. She was baptized, Lydia, and all of her household. So it wasn't just her, but it was her household. So what did her household consist of? 
Um, well, she was a businesswoman, a seller of purple. Purple was a, a wealthy person's cloth. So she, if she's selling to wealthy individuals, she's probably well off herself. If her house was large enough for the first church to meet in, then she had a, a, a large enough house to be considered a wealthy individual. But there isn't a man mentioned. Uh, why are there no men mentioned in this passage other than the Roman jailer? Well, it's, it's probably because they had all been conscripted uh, into service by the Roman army. So they're all out there, you know, doing the, the, the war stuff with the Roman army. Jewish man married to the Jewish woman is still out there doing that. So she's alone in this place. It might have included children, might have included grandchildren, would have included um, servants and other people that worked for her. But all of them hear the word of the Lord. All of them are baptized and come into the kingdom of God. So the first member of the church, of this awesome joy-filled church, was what was probably a single mom and her entire household. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman or slave. The second person mentioned is a slave. Not just a slave, but a slave girl that was demon-possessed. She was a, a part of the cult of Apollos or uh, Python, um, the, the snake god, a snake goddess. From, uh, from that time. And this, this slave girl would go into a trance and begin to tell people's fortunes, as it were. Uh, and, and so her, her owners made a lot of money through her doing that. The story is, is told here is that she, she saw Paul and Silas and began to cry out, these men are servants of the Most High God telling you the way of salvation. You think, well, maybe that's a good thing, right? You draw a crowd and the people are going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did she say anything that wasn't true? Well, no, not really, not really. But then she did it again and again and again and again. And it tells us that she went throughout the city following them as they went along. So there, you can imagine, they're in deep conversations, okay, with someone explaining the gospel and she's leaning over their shoulders. These men are servants of the Most High God telling people the way of salvation. At some point, I'm sure Paul looked at her and said, shh, you know, do you need to go sit in the corner? You know, go, go away, go away, be, be, be quiet. She, didn't be, she wasn't quiet. Paul rebukes the demon in her. Come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ, and immediately the demon leaves this slave girl. And she's transformed. It doesn't tell us in this passage, but all theologians agree and all the commentaries that at this point she, she likely became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and she would have been the second member of the church. So, but let's, let's go back to what she was saying. What, was there anything wrong with what she was saying? Was it true? Well, yes, it was true, but remember the one saying it. The one saying it is a demon, as, he is, as this demon is speaking through this young slave girl. In Genesis chapter 14, we see the same word uh, in Hebrew, Used, which and there it, it's, it means servant of the, or it means most high God, most high God who is the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. Think about that. Creator and possessor of heaven and earth. Most high God. And then Isaiah 14, you see it used again. Creator and possessor of the most high God. But in that case, in Isaiah 14, it is used to describe the thoughts going through Satan's mind when he rebels against God. He wanted to be the most high God, the creator and possessor 
of heaven and earth. He wanted to be like God. He didn't want to be like God in his grace or his mercy or his love or his justice. Satan wanted to be like God and he wanted to be the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. He wanted to be the ruler. So this demon-possessed girl is crying out that these men, Paul and Silas, are trying to call you into this place to be the creator and possessor. This demon is seeing Paul and Silas as, a, as, as an opponent of who this demon worships, somebody that longs to be the creator and possessor, and this is the opponent of that. So what this demon-possessed girl is crying out is true, but not from what, she doesn't mean it that way. She means it as an opponent that needs to be silenced. Well, she is silenced, or the demon is silenced, and she is freed. Her chains are broken, and, and her shame is taken up by Christ. The result is that Paul and Silas are beaten horribly because of what they have done as they've rescued this young girl. That's not the reaction you expect, right? You rescue somebody from a burning car, and the crowd comes around you and beats you within an inch of your life. These guys rescue this girl, this human trafficked girl, was human trafficking Philippi style. They rescue her from this. And they're beaten for it. They're beaten horribly. They're stripped naked, beaten with rods, thrown into prison. Their arms are shackled to the wall. Their feet are shackled. And there's a Roman jailer that's given the job of overseeing them. His job is to make sure they don't escape. He's not there to take care of their wounds. He's not there to feed them, clothe them. He's there to make sure they don't get away. A Roman guard was a special person. Unlike Lydia, the worshiper of God, or the slave girl that was hostile to God, this Roman guard would have been a special person in the community, but would have been thought of much amongst the common people of Rome. And yet there's a sense in which he still didn't measure up. Even though he's somebody in the town, he still doesn't measure up to God. There's a different standard. No matter how great you are in the community, unless you have Jesus Christ, you do not measure up. Does anybody know who Steve Rogers is? Raise your hand if you know who Steve Rogers is. Nobody? Come on. Isaac, you know who Steve Rogers is. He's not willing to admit it. Steve Rogers. There's a Steve Rogers fan. Captain America. Who knows who Captain America is? Hello. Captain America, Steve Rogers. So Steve Rogers, before he becomes Captain America, is this skinny little kid, new kid on the block like I was. Um, you know, and he wants to be somebody. More than that, he wants to go to war. He wants to go to World War II to defend his nation and stand alongside his buddies who were given their lives for freedom. Something we remember well here Memorial Day weekend. Steve Rogers was ready to give his life for that, but he's a skinny kid that didn't measure up. He had all sorts of ailments from blood pressure issues to asthma, and, and he got his teeth kicked in every other night. But, you know, he, he didn't, just didn't measure up. So he goes through the Captain America experiments, and, you know, and, and he goes from being this tall to this tall and skinny little kid to just totally buff, you know, and um, his abs have abs. You know, and so the, the guy's just rocking it, right? And still, his commanding officer looks at him and says, you will never be enough. You'll never be enough. You'll never be enough.
be enough. You'll never be enough. What's your standard? What's your measuring stick? What are you trying to measure up to to be enough? My friends, it doesn't matter if you're Captain America. It doesn't matter if you're the Roman guard in this place. Unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is a sense in which you aren't enough. But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are more than enough. Let's unpack what happens in the, in the life of this Roman guard. God's, they're, 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 they're shackled. Paul and Silas are shackled to the wall. Their feet are shackled. Uh, God sends an earthquake, of course, because that's what God does when Paul's in prison. The, the, uh, the doors fall off. Their chains fall off. You know, my chains fell off. I, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what Paul and Silas did. They, they rose, but they didn't leave. The Roman guard at this point sees that he has failed. Nothing was worse for a Roman guard than to fail. So he takes his sword. He's about to run himself through and kill himself, thus saving his commanding officers the trouble of having him executed. He is a failure. He will never, ever again measure up, even to being a Roman guard. Paul and Silas stop him from doing that. They say, look, we're still here. Uh, they, they spend time with this, this Roman guard. They lead him into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he is baptized. He takes them into his home. He, he bathes their wounds. He feeds them. And, and this, this Roman guard and all of his family and household are baptized. Just like Lydia. He's gone from being an opposition guard to being a brother from being an oppressor to being a servant, from being someone that kills to someone that's a physician. He's binding them up and he's washing the blood off of their bodies and bringing healing and life to them. Verse 34 tells us that because they believed in Jesus Christ at that point, they all had joy. We've seen the salvation of a Jewish businesswoman, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman soldier, a Gentile. What an odd way to start a church, right? Who would have written that story? God. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. God has a different plan. My friends, we often want to start a church or, or staff our church or, or build our church or have the, the, the pews full of people that we would design. We want to pick out the perfect people to come. You might not know this, I've got a, um, a doctorate in church planting and revitalization. Uh, what that means is you get to write a dissertation and put it on your shelf that no one ever reads. Uh, besides that, it means that I get to have a lot of awesome conversations with planters and pastors that are doing church revitalization. Uh, revitalization's revital, re, re-life, bringing life back into a church, making it healthy and alive again through Jesus Christ. So as, as I talk with these guys, uh, one thing that is interesting to me is they all have this idea of what the perfect person is that will come into this new church or this church is suddenly healthy again. And, and the, the, the profile is always just this perfect individual. You know, when I, when I moved to Montgomery to take First Pres and replant it, I thought all my buddies from Auburn right down the road were going to come and be a part of the church. You know, we were going to have a good old fun fraternity party together. Uh, planting this new uh, gospel-driven church in the city of Montgomery. Not one of them came. But th- that's, that's the story for all of these guys. Yet five years down the road, every one of these church planters and church, church re- revitalization guys will, will tell you to a man, 
that God didn't bring the people I thought he would bring. He brought his people, and he built his church his way, and we're the better for it. We have an idea of what God's plan should be. It rarely lines up with what God's thinking. We want to let God build his church his way. Another thing we see in this passage is not just that God builds his church his way, but that Jesus takes all the shame and the brokenness that is so evident in this passage. So much brokenness. You've got a single mom, perhaps a widow, but I think if she was a widow, they would have said so. You've got a single mom, Jewish woman, uh, whose husband is likely conscripted to a foreign army. She's alone, and she's looked down on by the Jewish men. She's looked down on by the Roman men and the Roman women. Shame is thrown at her, thrown at her. You've got a demon-possessed slave girl that's nothing but a source of money to her owners, human trafficking. So much shame and brokenness. And even though it's not her doing, even though they're taking advantage of her, she feels the shame. You've got a Roman jailer that knows the shame of failure and he's ready to kill himself to put an end to his life, to sparing of life itself. In all of these situations, God steps into the picture and builds his church, his way. In Galatians, in chapter 3, in verse 28, Starting in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Jesus takes the shame and replaces it with the title of heir, son or daughter of the living Lord, brother or sister of Jesus Christ, co-heirs with Christ. I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Jesus says, far be it from that. You are my brother and sister in Christ. You are co-heirs of Jesus Christ. Heirs of the promise of Abraham. Jesus takes our brokenness and he takes our shame and he throws grace upon us. He lavishes it upon us as we read in Ephesians chapter 1. Lavishes it upon us. What kind of shame are you hanging on to? Is it shame that maybe you brought on yourself, but you won't let yourself let go of it? Even though Jesus Christ has taken it, you still want to hang on to it? Is it shame that others have given to you? They've told you that you don't measure up, that you'll never be enough. My friends, listen, none of us are enough except for Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, all that have faith in him, you are more than enough. You've got a place at the table with the living Lord for all eternity. Nothing measures up to that. You're more than enough. Jesus has taken your shame, your brokenness. He takes the unlovely, the unwelcome people just like me and you, the unwanted and the unpopular, and begins his kingdom in his way. Jesus comes into this place in Philippi, 
and he obliterates their shame and pours out his joy. He brings joy to the party. In verse 20 of chapter 16, looking at Paul and Silas, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Shame, 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 shame. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. They inflicted many blows upon them and threw them in the prison. It was not lawful for Paul to be beaten because he was a Roman citizen. Why didn't Paul speak up and say, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this to me? They would have stopped it at that point. Why did he, did he not do that? Because in, in, later in verse 37, he does that. He says, I'm a Roman citizen, and he demands an apology, and he gets it. Why didn't he do it in the beginning? Similar to Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus could have stopped the beating. He could have stopped the crucifixion, but he didn't. Paul and Silas were stripped and beaten. Jesus was stripped and beaten. Jesus was hung on a cross, stripped naked, humiliated by all of his creation. And he did it because he wanted to bring joy in the place of shame. Jesus takes the shame and the sin and he takes it to the cross, that emblem of suffering and shame, and he replaces it with a joy unspeakable. Paul and Silas rest in the humiliation of being the people of Philippi. Even though Paul was a Roman citizen, he sits with them in the prison. What are the implications of this for us? Let me give you three. There's many that we can draw from. I encourage you to dive into it more. In fact, I encourage you to read the book of Philippians before the week's over, and you'll see more of how this unfolds. First thing is we need to let God build his church with his people his way. Build his church with his people his way. Joy happens, as we see in Philippians chapter 1, joy happens when there's partnership in ministry. When there's partnership, when men and women, all the members, all the members of the whole church come together in partnership as one and do ministry together, joy grows. This early church, this, the partnership that Paul talks about in, in Philippians 1 is made up of a Roman soldier, a Jewish businesswoman, and a demon-possessed slave girl that had found Christ and been released from her de demonic uh, possessor. Those three never would have been in the same room together. Never, ever. God takes those three unlikely individuals and he builds a partnership in the gospel through the Holy Spirit and forms a church that is known for their joy. There wasn't division in there. They knew Jesus, they worshiped Jesus together and as they did that, they came together and planted this phenomenal church. Let God build his church with his people his way. Second, in Christ, beauty overwhelms brokenness. My friends, let Jesus overwhelm and mend your brokenness. Let him have it. Let him have your shame. Don't take it back up again. 
We tend to hide our brokenness, and frankly, that's encouraged. We encourage people to hide our brokenness because we don't know how to deal with it. We imagine that we're the only people that are broken in our, in our family or in, our, in this space, maybe. My friends, as many as are the people in this room, that's how many people in this room are broken. Every single one of us, me, you, we all have that brokenness. We're all in desperate need of Jesus Christ. We're all the same. Beauty overwhelms that brokenness, though. Let Jesus mend that brokenness and that shame. And Christ is the third one. In Christ, joy roars. The lion roars and obliterates shame. He obliterates it, stomps it under his feet, and it's done. The serpent shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush the serpent's head. Jesus crushes shame. Don't take it up again. And don't let anyone throw it at you. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, your shame has been taken. When the days are easy, and sometimes they are, and all is going right, real joy comes to Jesus Christ. When the days are long and they are hard and nothing seems to be going right, joy comes through Jesus Christ still as he built his church with his people in his way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this gospel that you give to us. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you for Paul and Silas and, and Lydia and this Roman soldier and this beautiful slave girl, Lord, that is a slave no more. Lord, the, I'm amazed that one day we're going to all get to fellowship together and hear their stories. Father, until that day, I pray that you would use us as a church to declare your gospel of Jesus Christ, that others might come into your kingdom and know the hope of heaven, the joy of Jesus. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.